This is Drew Kaiser, and you're listening to Wide Margins, Episode 27, Survivors. In this episode, I just want to share with you an opportunity that I had to speak with the Cancer Survivors Support Group at the East Ridge Church of Christ in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Somebody in that group had heard uh, one of the episodes of this podcast, I think it was episode number 10, on my diagnosis, and they thought that I should share those ideas with the group. Uh, Of course, I was a little apprehensive about that because my battle with Parkinson's doesn't compare with some of these folks and what they've been going through and how hard and bravely they've been fighting. But it was a great honor to be asked, so I gladly accepted the invitation. And uh, this past week, I was able to go up there and talk with them. Had a great experience with them. Uh, A couple things before I played the presentation. First of all, please forgive the sound quality. It's not great. Uh, I did the best I could. I had to record it with my phone. Considering that, it's it's pretty good. You'll hear every word. It's just not you know the quality that I would prefer. Another thing is, I this is the first time I've ever been able to do something like this. So I'm happy with the results. I there were some things that I wasn't able to include. To be honest with you. I was fighting my emotions the whole time, and you'll be able to hear that a little bit. And because I was fighting emotions, some of the things most important to me, I had to clip short. I wasn't able to elaborate on them as much as I wanted to, uh, otherwise I would have lost it. So I you know, was able to touch some high points of some things, but my support system, my family, how special they are to me. My church and how it has helped me through all of this. Uh, prayer, I was able to get some things out about prayer before choking up about that. Uh, my PD Fight Club or Rocksteady boxing group that means so much to me and the support I get from them and the, uh, the benefits of the exercise. I touched on all of those things, but when I started talking about them, I felt the emotions taking over and had to move on. I I know how bad that can get with me, and some of you have seen that, unfortunately. So, you know, the main thing was to get through the presentation. So I hope it's helpful to you. Uh, I hope that you'll enjoy it. I'm just going to play it and, uh, you know, see what you think. I really thank you for this opportunity to be here. I don't quite feel up to the task when uh, I was invited to do this, kind of felt a little bit like John baptizing Jesus, saying, you know, I need to learn from you instead of you learning from me. I'm sure there's a lot that you could teach me, but I could share with you my experience, and if it's any help at all, uh, that would be a blessing to me. Um, The idea for me coming to talk to you was uh, several months ago, I shared my experience of being diagnosed with Parkinson's disease on my podcast, Wide Margins. And somebody heard it, uh, the Claiborne's maybe, and uh, said this would be good for this group. So I'm, I'm trusting y'all that, that it would be good for this group. I, I hope that I have something of value to share with you, and I appreciate the opportunity. It's a real honor to be here. Uh, as far back as I can remember, about 2009, I started having some pretty serious back pain. I was really active, I was running a lot, and 
just this aggravating back pain would not go away. And so in about 2011, I decided I'd get something done about it. Started going to orthopedic specialists and uh, even orthopedic surgeons, talking to them about my problem. I had at least seven MRIs from head to toe. They were checking everything out. They were saying, aside from the usual wear and tear, we really don't see anything going on. And then I started having a tremor in my left hand. And uh, of course I did what everybody tells you not to do, right? I Googled it. And then I was horrified at all the possible things. And I guess that's probably one similarity that, that we could probably share. If you're suffering from cancer, that's one thing you probably shouldn't do is Google your symptoms. And, and because the internet's gonna tell you the worst case scenario. And if it does give you an even balanced view of things, you're going to pay attention to the worst case scenario, which is exactly what I did. Um, I started going to uh, different doctors, getting information, and it was a real roller coaster of trying to find out what was going on. I was in my late 30s at the time, and Parkinson's disease doesn't affect too many people that young. So uh, it wasn't the first thing that doctors suspected. Looking back on that, I don't see how because my symptoms were pretty classic. Um, it was pretty, it's pretty obvious to me now, but back then I didn't know much about the disease and some of the doctors I went to, it didn't seem that they knew much about the disease. And of course, uh, my denial didn't help a whole lot either. I remember one neurologist, I went to four different ones before I finally accepted what they were telling me, but I remember the first one I went to back in 2012 said, well, he came back and just stunned me saying, it's one of two things. You have a condition called essential tremors, which just means you have a benign tremor or it's Parkinson's. And when he said that, I just, I got angry and I said, why would you say it's Parkinson's? And he said, because it could possibly be Parkinson's. I said, how possible? He said, I don't know. And that was one moment, and maybe you've had these moments, I'm trying to think of the name uh, some people have given it. I think it's called a flashbulb moment or a flashpoint moment where everything just freezes in your memory. I remember the drive home from the doctor's appointment. I remember what I was thinking at certain stoplights. I remember all kinds of things that was going through my mind on the way home. But one thing was I'm going to make sure that I don't have Parkinson's, which if you have a disease, you have it, whether you like it or not. But I uh, started pursuing every angle I could. One thing I made sure that I didn't do is go back to that neurologist who told me I could possibly have Parkinson's. So I went to a general practitioner. I thought, I need somebody to orchestrate all these specialists. And he sent me to a rheumatologist. He sent me to um, an orthopedic specialist, another one, a neurosurgeon, um, another neurologist. Um, the neurologist put me through all this medicine over and over and over again because Parkinson's doesn't really have a good diagnostic test. They just see how you respond to medicine and run some clinical tests in the doctor's office and try to make a judgment call as to what, what you have. So I went through all of that. And of course on the side I was going to see chiropractors and acupuncturists and um, 
I went to, I just, you know, fess up, I tried a lot of different stuff. I went to a holistic dentist in Knoxville who replaced all my fillings and he told me he was going to fix me up and it didn't have any effect on me whatsoever. I was just trying everything because I thought there's no way that I have this thing, but it kept coming back to Parkinson's disease. So finally, after all of those appointments and going up and down on the roller coaster, um, I went to a neurologist that I had seen for a long period of time and had developed a relationship with, a little trust with, and he said, you know, I think it's time for us to settle in and this is what it is. And that was a moment I had been afraid of, but it was actually a relief. Um, because, you know, at some point you get to where you know you have this thing, and the denial becomes an exhausting battle. And so I remember coming home relieved because now instead of fighting 700 different possibilities, I had one thing that I could focus on. And it, it, I felt better than I'd felt in years when I finally came to accept that. So I, that's one thing I thought about that we might have in common is the tendency to deny what's right in front of us. Human beings have a real faculty for that. We can deny things right in front of us. And it's not good for us, but it's what we do. Maybe it's a defense mechanism that helps us prepare emotionally or psychologically. I'm not sure, but it was my experience, and I'm sure that a lot of other people have had the same experience. Um, I learned a lot about prayer through this whole process. Um, and I wanted to share a couple thoughts on that. One, um, one passage that's become special to me is 2 Kings chapter 20, which tells about King Hezekiah's prayer for recovery. You probably recall Hezekiah was one of the good kings, one of the better kings of Judah, and he grew sick. And I want to read this account from 2 Kings 20, beginning verse 1. In those days Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. And then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Now, O Lord, please remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him, Turn back and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add fifteen years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria. And I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. There's more, but I want to stop there because I've thought about this passage a great deal and what it says about prayer. And one of the obvious points here is that it's appropriate to pray for healing. 
um, Hezekiah prayed and God listened and God answered. And this whole thing was about Hezekiah's sickness. But there's another angle on it that has puzzled me. And I think it might change what a lot of us who are praying and struggling through things. It might change our perspective on prayer. And that is that God just gave with certainty a death sentence to Hezekiah. You're going going to die. Put your affairs in order. Your time is up. And Hezekiah prayed. And then God said, okay, 15 more years. On the surface, that's the way it, the prayer looks. But some things just don't add up with that interpretation. For one thing, there are passages of Scripture that say God doesn't change. That He's not a man who changes His mind or lies or... He's always faithful. He always says, he always does what he says he'll do. So how do we reconcile that essential part of God's nature? Theologians call it his immutability. How do you reconcile that with this change? And there are other places like with Moses and the Israelites after the golden calf. God told Moses, stand out of the way. I'm going to blot them out from the face of the earth. I'm going to make a new nation out of you. And Moses prayed. And it says that God changed his mind or he repented of the disaster that he said that he would do. Well, what happened here is not so much that God changed, but that Hezekiah changed. There's a very important detail that people read past down near the end where after telling Hezekiah he would add 15 years to his life, he said, and I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria. This gets a little confusing because the order of events is written in um, 2 Kings and in Isaiah, which where this is repeated, have the story of Hezekiah's showdown with Assyria first and then the sickness. But that can't be the chronological order because you know, God is saying, here, you haven't faced the Assyrians yet. So Hezekiah is preparing for this. And evidently, there were some things in Hezekiah that needed to change in order for God to be able to use him in this way to save his people from Assyria. Hezekiah, if you know him, you can read about it later. I won't get into it. But he could have some tendencies to be full of pride and arrogance. And this humbled him. You see, the detail included that he wept bitterly. And then he changed. And so God could do something different. There's two different things. God doing something differently is not the same thing as God changing his essential nature. I think of it in terms of you know, a position on the face of the earth as it's revolving around the sun. Now this position could be in the dark at some point, but as the earth comes around and rotates so that position is now facing the sun, it's in the light. It doesn't mean the sun has gone anywhere, the sun has changed, the earth has changed in its perspective on the sun so that it now sees the sun in a different way. And that's what happened with Hezekiah. He revolved, he rotated, and so God's mercy and his ability to heal, which had always been there, was able to be on display. But we have to be careful about this thing, and and I, I won't go over to this other passage but I do want to mention it, and that's Paul's thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. Uh, Paul had a thorn in the flesh, some physical malady. 
He prayed earnestly that it be uh, removed from him, and God didn't remove it from him. Instead, he said, Paul, you need this. And Paul learned from it that when I am weak, I'm strong. Um, I heard George Bailey tell this story one time that a mother overheard his a mother overheard her child praying to the Lord, please let Birmingham be the capital of the state of Alabama. Please, please let Birmingham be the capital of the state of Alabama. And so after he was done praying, she said, Son, why are you praying that Birmingham is the capital of the state of Alabama? He said, Because that's what I put on the test today. Well, he had already flunked that test. You know, He wasn't going to change anything with a prayer. And... Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I had the opportunity to go to UAB Medical School and sit in with second-year medical students on the presentation about Parkinson's disease. And I learned a lot of stuff, too much for me to share with you at this hour. But one of the things I learned is the moment those symptoms, the more classic symptoms like the tremor and the rigidity, the moment those appear, you've already lost 80% of the dopamine receptors in your brain. If they could learn to detect it in some other way earlier, they might be able to do more about the disease. But one of the problems they're facing is by the time the symptoms show up and the doctors recognize that you have Parkinson's disease, the damage has been done. So I started praying to be delivered from this after the damage had been done. But that doesn't mean the prayer was ineffective in any way. And I had to learn to pray differently. I had to start learning, and, and I evolved in this. I stopped praying for uh, being healed from this disease, and I started asking for the strength to handle it. And that, that made all the difference in the world to me. I, I think I learned more about prayer through this than anything else. I want to share with you um, some information about Parkinson's because there's a lot of misinformation out there. And any chance that I get to, to share some things that I've learned about it and uh, share some things I've learned from my experience, I think is helpful. Um, Parkinson's is a movement disorder. So it affects the way you move. It has other symptoms as well, but the, the biggest symptoms are... Um, and I'll just put these in layman's terms, uh, sluggishness of movement, tremor, muscle rigidity, and uh, there's, there's a fourth one that escapes me right now. Maybe it's memory loss because I can't remember <laughs> it right now. But those are the big, the big four, and uh, three of the big four, if I can remember the other one. And that's generally how they diagnose it, looking at those four things. There are other symptoms people don't think about. What it is, as I referred to a moment ago, is the loss of the dopamine receptors in your brain. Now, if you know anything about dopamine, it obviously has to do with movement in the body, but it also has to do with mood. You know, you hear people talk about, I got my dopamine fixed today, meaning they, got, they went out and exercised or they did something and it made you feel good. So naturally, and this is something I had to learn, um, you have uh, mood swings, not swings so much, but you deal with depression and anxiety as a part of Parkinson's. 
There are other symptoms that um, you know I've come to learn about. I won't bore you with all of those, but there are a lot of different things that you deal with. But one thing that you know I think that you would like for people to know about cancer, and that I try to tell people about Parkinson's is, it's not a death sentence. It's just not a death sentence. When you get that, if you don't know much about the disease, you may think that, because I hear a lot of people say that. A guy argued with me in the foyer of a church building just a couple weeks ago about this one point. He's like, no, it is a death sentence. And I'm like, well, first of all, that's rude because I have this, but also you're just wrong about it. Uh, You can live a very good, fulfilling life with this disease. Uh, You might have to live it differently, but you can live a good life. A man told me this when I announced to the congregation that I have uh, Parkinson's disease. A man who'd been through colon cancer and war and had buried a wife and been through a lot of other physical problems. He, uh, he came up to me that service and he said, you know, I learned a long time ago there's more than one way to live this life. And what he meant is there's the normal way or what people call normal And then there are all these other wonderful ways you can live your life. And that stuck with me. That was some good advice. Uh, Parkinson's is a lot more common than people understand. I've learned that now one out of 100 people over the age of 65 have Parkinson's disease. It's a lot less frequent at my age. I'm 43 and I've had it since I was 36, 37 years old. But uh, that's a lot of people. And uh, they don't really know what causes it. Uh, Brain trauma definitely is a contributing factor. Uh, I grew up with three brothers, so that's definitely a possibility with me. Um, Chemicals like fertilizers and things that we put out on the ground and into our crops that gets into our well water, that could be it. One of the first things the doctors asked me was, did you grow up on a farm? Yeah. Did you ever work on a farm? Yes. Did you ever work around chemicals? Yeah, I did golf course maintenance. Is this a problem? Well, and they're not sure, but they're getting closer to an answer, which is another thing I learned at UAB when I was there a couple weeks ago. Um, treatment. Um, there are three main lines of treatment. Uh, medicine is still the most prevalent, and there are a lot of medicines out there, and they're getting better medicines all the time. But one frustrating thing is the most effective medicine they have for Parkinson's was developed in 1967. So we haven't moved the ball forward a whole lot with medical treatments. They've come up with others. There's some things that aren't approved yet that are very exciting to read about. Maybe very soon they'll be coming out with something. But right now, if you're diagnosed with this, the medicine you're probably going to be prescribed eventually that's most effective was something developed in 1967. So we've still got a lot of research to do and a lot of um, a lot of ground to cover. Um, there is a surgical option which is really amazing. Uh, one of the things that I saw at UAB Medical School is a demonstration of what they call deep brain stimulation. Uh, they insert a an electrode, a wire some doctors call it, into your brain, into the hypothalamus, and it has a battery 
that they insert in your chest, kind of like a pacemaker, I would think, and it puts out about three volts of uh, electricity into your brain, and it'll stop the rigidity and the tremor. Now, if you have it on both sides, I just have it on my left side, but if you have it on both sides, you'd have to have two of those. And uh, I was able to see a man, he was 76 years old, they brought him in to demonstrate this to the medical students, and he looked pretty good. I mean, he was moving kind of slowly, but I didn't see a tremor, I didn't see any rigidity really, and I've learned what that looks like. I can spot it anywhere, my, my kids can too. But one time Jackson leaned over and he goes, hey dad, that guy has Parkinson's. And I said, shh, don't, don't say anything, son, he may not know it. But he was right, that guy had it. Um, so I couldn't tell really with this man. And the doctors used a remote computer and they turned off the signal and when they did, he immediately started shaking pretty bad, really bad. It got bad. And uh, the rigidity set in. He kind of started curling up a little bit. And his wife was saying, this is the way he looked before the surgery. Um, then they turned it back on, and immediately the tremor stopped. And the rigidity went away. Sounds pretty great, right? Well, here's a couple of other things about the surgery. They don't put you to sleep during it, so they drill a hole into your head while you're awake. <laughs> Not sure I'm ready for that one. And it takes about four hours for just one. At UAB, they'll only do one at a time. I think Vanderbilt will do two at a time and keep you on the operating table for seven or eight hours. Um, I'm not ready for that yet. I'm doing pretty good with what I got going. But there is a surgical option, and I've been hearing about some interesting things that could replace that on down the road and make it a lot easier for the patient, which is exciting to hear. I don't know if you feel this way. I feel like if there's always something out there that I haven't tried yet that, that's available on down the road, it really helps me to keep fighting. And it keeps the hope alive. Another... Um, really important thing is exercise. They said this at UAB, but um, I discovered this on my own uh, years ago, really. Uh, right after I was diagnosed, my dad saw a special on CBS about a program that uses boxing to fight Parkinson's called Rock Steady. It's out of Indianapolis. It's developed by physical therapists and doctors and uh, specialists, neurologists to find some kind of physical therapy. And I know that boxing is associated with the cause of Parkinson's. Uh, people know about Muhammad Ali, but they've learned that it is also helpful. Uh, I told my doctor about it one time and he was really skeptical. He said, you're not hitting each other in the head, are you? And I said, of course not, we're not doing that. We hit bags, um, not people. And there's a lot of other things that we do in it. Uh, there are things that we do for balance, uh, for dexterity. Uh, we work on our voices because Parkinson's can affect your voice. And for me, that's a really important thing. I don't want to lose my voice. We uh, work on all kinds of things. And it's a built-in support group. And it's a lot of fun. And people there are fighters and very positive. And uh, that group has become very important to me. Just like this group is really important. That's my support group that I have. You walk in, you're not self-conscious. Everybody understands, and that's really important. So those are the three things that um, 
they have to treat it. The medicine, the surgery, and the exercise. They're coming out with new things all the time. Um, I don't have a whole lot more to share, but on the podcast when I talked about this, there was a poem that I read that, um, for me, relates to what I've been going through. It's a poem called Thanks by W.S. Merwin. And this might be kind of weird, but the reason I connect it to my experience, one of the connections is, at one point he talks about words going out like cells of a brain. So you think about your brain cells a lot when you're dealing with Parkinson's. And so I'll read this, and uh, then I'll be finished. This is called Thanks. Listen, with the night falling, we are saying thank you. We're stopping on the bridges to, to bow from the railings. We're running out of the glass rooms with our mouths full of food to look at the sky and say thank you. We're standing by the water, thanking it, standing by the windows looking out in our directions. Back from a series of hospitals, back from a mugging after funerals, we're saying thank you. After the news of the dead, whether or not we knew them, we are saying, thank you. Over telephones, we are saying, thank you. In doorways and in the backs of cars and in elevators, remembering wars and the police at the door and the beatings on stairs, we are saying, thank you. In the banks, we are saying, thank you. In the faces of the officials and the rich and of all who will never change, we go on saying, thank you, thank you. With the animals dying around us, our lost feelings, we are saying thank you. With the forest falling faster than the minutes of our lives, we are saying thank you. With the words going out like cells of a brain, with the cities growing over us, we are saying thank you faster and faster. With nobody listening, we are saying thank you. We are saying thank you and waving, dark though it is. Thanks.